our hyper-partisan us-versus-them political climate, where's Alberta's centrist option? That is what the Alberta Party bills themselves as. Well, we're going to chat with the acting leader and find out what's going on and what they're planning as we head into an election. A lot of discussion about penalties for drunk drivers who take young lives in our country. And Alberta MLA Pat Ray is back in the United Conservative Caucus just six months after he was booted out when Slave Lake Town Council said he's not doing the job. So yesterday, if you remember, we had a discussion about Alberta politics that uh, had a lot of people in the audience sort of pining for another choice. They don't feel at home with the UCP or the NDP, and uh, they're lost for a third more moderate option, which, of course, led us to start talking about the Alberta Party, which positions itself as Alberta's centrist option. Unfortunately for them, without a whole lot of success to this point, uh, just a handful of MLAs now and then in previous elections, and in the last election, they ran candidates in all 87 ridings, and they lost in all 87 ridings. So, while we were discussing the party yesterday, Jackie Fenske, who's the acting party leader, got a hold of me on Twitter and said, hey, Shay, we're, we're just a phone call away. We can tell you what we're doing. And I said, okay, that sounds reasonable. Let's set it up. So we did, and I'm thrilled that Jackie can join us now to tell us all about the Alberta Party. Jackie, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Shay, and thanks for the opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, we're a couple of years out from the next election, and I think there definitely is some ground to be uh, made up for you guys, obviously, in terms of seats. But not only that, just raising the awareness of the fact that, hey, you don't have to be NDP or UCP in this province. What kind of work is underway to make that happen? Well, certainly, Shay, it is more difficult when we don't have seats in the legislature, but we've been doing our best, and part of it, I guess, is incumbent on mainstream media, because I think that's where people say, well, we're not hearing from you, but we do issue uh, media releases, uh, usually on a weekly basis, but I know that the number of reporters has been reduced, Uh, there's always a new burning issue that the government creates, so it's you know, you've only got so much airtime, so you pick and choose. But certainly we're always looking for, you know, what can we do to uh, get out the word um, in a more efficient, better manner. But we do have our website. And um, actually what we have started this summer, we had one again last night, is uh, the Big Listen. Now, several years ago, that's kind of sort of the formation of mm-hmm. the current Alberta Party. Is we went around the province and we talked to people and just listened to them. And so we have uh, started the Big Listen 2.0. This was our second in the summer, so um, about every week. Our shadow cabinet ministers uh, take it upon themselves to host a call from Albertans, Zoom in this particular case. Though we're probably going to, towards the end of summer, try to do a combination of Zoom and in-person. You know, we've had to adapt and adopt. pivot just like every other uh, Albertan has had to do in in this case. And we want to listen. If, um, the one thing that keeps coming out just in this short period of time, sort of over and over, is the word respect. Uh, certainly we want to follow up on that. Now, the 2.0 Big Listen followed uh, a series of panels that we hosted in the last 16 months or since I've arrived here. Uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, where we provided the opportunity for experts to comment on such things as hydrogen and agriculture, um, uh, talking to the dis- the community that um, uh, has uh, either is disabled uh, themselves or have uh, loved ones that have disabilities, and uh, just trying to hear from them and what 
what we needed to, to do to educate ourselves. So now we've got that background of information. Now we want to hear from other Albertans as to sort of what's on their mind. What would they like to see changed? What, what are their priorities and how, how would they like those priorities addressed? And then this, of course, will lead to a policy uh, conference following the election of our new leader. Which is planned for when? That was one of the key questions, obviously. Having a, a, a formal leader in place will make a big, big difference. So what's the timeline for that? Uh, that will be in the first week in November. It will be <clears throat> sorry, uh, in conjunction with our next AGM. And uh, so uh, the nomination period, for the period that people have to put their nominate, their uh, applications in, ends, I think it's August 25th. Sorry, I might be off on a day or two as far as the number. But towards the end of August, and uh, the board has until August 30th to approve those candidates. And uh, then we're off uh, preparing for the leadership race, which I believe will probably be the will be probably be the only party in Alberta that will actually have a leadership race. I mean, unless yeah, the current sure. premier changes his mind. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when we're talking about a leader, um, the timing there is kind of interesting, Jackie. November, which would be immediately following the municipal elections in October. And we know there's some big names in municipal politics that are stepping away from that. Have there been discussions with, oh, I don't know, Nahed Nenshi, Don Iveson, some other high-profile city councillors? Um, are there any discussions underway with some names that we might recognize? Um, okay, uh, there are names you will recognize. There uh, have been discussions sitting uh, municipal leaders. Uh, I believe there's some contemplation, maybe perhaps not the ones that you've identified. Sure, okay. uh, but uh, I'm not in a position right now to sort of <clears throat> disclose those names, but... Yeah, there will be. There definitely will be a race. Excellent. Okay, interesting. Now, I guess the question here is, and I talk a lot about it on the show. This whole environment of us versus them politics that we've um, sort of bought into. I mean, it, not not everybody, and I think for the majority of people, they're not interested in the outrage politics. It's they actually want to 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 examine the issues and think about it without just reacting from that angry place, um, which seems to fit perfectly with what you're doing. Are you hearing that when you're holding these big lessons? Is that what people are saying to you? Give us an option that isn't just is based on, I hate that other person? Well, that's certainly what we're hearing. And what we see with a two-party system currently in our legislature is that us versus them. And, um, I mean, sometimes we're up to childish childish antics uh, within the legislature. And people want us to act like adults, and they want us to pre- present those kinds of ideas and actually base it on some types of facts and and respect of the L- the general you and me Albertan, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what is respect? It's listening. It's, um, it's active listening and it's transparency and it's, uh, politeness as well. But, uh, everybody has something that they want to add, but going back to that, yes. And we're trying to present those alternatives. I mean, we were out there with hydrogen solutions, uh, Last December or November, we were working on that, and then the UCP decided that was a great one, and finally the NDs decided, oh, yes, we should get on the bandwagon. But we know that you have to be looking forward, and we have to present those ideas. Uh, I was just at a golf tournament on Monday, and um, business community in Edmonton, and I was absolutely floored. I did not initiate the conversation. And I was not there as the acting leader of the Alberta Party. But everybody wanted to talk about the Alberta Party because they said, we are 
uh, disappointed with the UCP. This is not the conservative government we thought we had elected, and we certainly do not refuse to go back to uh, the NDs because they weren't good for business in Alberta. And these were, as I said, business leaders from the Edmonton area. So uh, they do want an alternative, and they want the options. And they, as I said, they want us to act like adults and put some uh, some great ideas on the table. And so we're trying to do that. Um, you're somebody who's been around politics for a long time. You've got experience. You've got history with politics. So let me ask you, because the reason these parties do this uh, is because it, it works. It's effective yep. to motivate people. Um, to make them angry is a great motivator. That's why they do it. That's why they play that game. When you're not going to get into that, and that's sort of the road that you've chosen, we're not going to devolve into us versus them politics. We're actually going to present ideas. Um, it's tough to motivate, and I think that may be reflected in the numbers of seats that you've won over the years. How do you bridge that gap in terms of motivating people, getting them inspired, without picking fights? I mean, that's what everybody yeah. does. You're right. I mean, that sells the clicks and that uh, sure. that gets listeners riled up and they want to listen. Um, perhaps the uh, what happened in the United States in the past few years might prove Turn to be some somewhat off. of an example. Yeah. I mean, we have to hope that way. And I guess our, I, you know, our ideas have to resonate. And we go back then I, to the mainstream media. Um, you know, I mean, part of that, and I understand it's because of staff shortages and it's because of... Uh, reduced opportunities, but uh, to present the democratic picture, too, so to get people thinking. And, um, you know, we have a a shadow cabinet that's what we've created with people who are passionate about the areas that they represent. And uh, so they've been out there uh, putting out op-eds, engaging people. Uh, Will that part of it, it will have to be our election strategy, too. We plan to run 87 candidates. But then there will be some riding, as some constituencies that will probably, well, that definitely will have uh, uh, an easier time in uh, electing someone. And that is our goal, is to get some people in the legislature where we can actually uh, have people listen to us and present policies and ideas uh, to affect change. Because Albertans are... You know, we've gone through a really rough period of time, and we do need some hope, and we need some vision for the future. Uh, just only have a minute left here, but let's put one of the big policy issues in front of you and what the Alberta Party's position is. So 30-second uh, response to public sector wages and the fight between doctors and nurses and the government saying we need to roll back wages. Where do you, what do you do with that one? Okay, so first of all, 30 seconds is tough, but let's just Alberta Health Services generally. Uh, certainly there are opportunities through attrition. We need to sit down with uh, the, the bodies, whether that is the professional associations, whether that's the unions, to say, where do you guys want to be in five years? Uh, let's sit down and figure this out together. I think that that has got to be the starting point. And, I mean, if there's no money to do anything... In five years, that's not good for anyone, so let's find some solutions. But certainly attrition has to be part of that picture uh, when it comes to AHS. That's not necessarily for the doctors. But as a former teacher myself, you know, I mean, we all are looking to the future, and we want Alberta to be strong, and we need to have everybody at the table to make those decisions. So some collaborative approaches. Instead of the us versus them, as we've been talking about. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Jackie, I apologize. I didn't leave enough time. We'll have to do this again, and we'll actually go through some of the issues that Albertans are facing and see where the Alberta Party stands, because it's interesting to have another voice injected into the conversation. I appreciate your time today. 
And we appreciate the time, too. Thanks, Shay. You bet. Thanks, Jackie. That is Jackie Fenske, who is the acting leader of the Alberta Party. We talked about this briefly yesterday. Um, Earlier this week, Christopher Rempel of Saskatchewan was sentenced to five years in prison in connection with a crash that killed two teens and injured a third. He was two times over the legal limit and driving the wrong way on a divided highway. Two young, innocent lives lost, five years. And in Canada, that probably means he won't do two years behind bars. It reminded a lot of people of a deadly crash from 2011. Three teens killed near Beaumont. Uh, The driver, in connection with that crash, got eight years in jail. Three teens, eight years in jail. Uh, Sentences that to a lot of people seem awfully, awfully light, especially when we're constantly reporting on how drunk driving continues to be a plague in this country. So what is going on with the laws around drunk driving? How can a sentence that light be delivered in a case so tragic? It just doesn't seem to make sense, at least not to me. So we're going to get some more legal advice on the show this morning. We're going to chat with uh, Ari Goldkind, who is a criminal defense lawyer and a legal commentator. We've had him on the show before. Uh, Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time once again. Always great to be on with you. So Ari, two kids killed, five years in jail. Just, it seems wrong. It seems incredibly unfair. Well, it does, and let's get to what's going on right now as you and I speaking in a courtroom in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is a young man going about 70 or 80 over the speed limit with a cop car behind him, Mm -hmm. smashed into a mother and her three children and killed them all, okay? Okay. And and that family is one of the most beautiful family you could ever see. For people who don't know the case, it's called Brady Robertson. It's in court literally as we speak right now. Okay. And that young man, and this is after Marco Muzzo, which is a name you may remember. Yes, that was, the yeah. that was the yes, supercar, that's right? Important. That's exactly right. The very wealthy man, the son of the billionaire, gets off the private jet, gets into his uh, SUV, he's three times over the legal limit to the point where he urinates himself, goes through an intersection, and kills the Neville Lake family, babies, grandparents, and the horror, I can't tell you. And the reason I introduce that as we get into this is because you would think, Shay, that after that happens, people in York region would think twice about drinking and driving. You would think watching the news, listening to you and I, yeah. watching uh, all, all the TV. It's a huge story. You know about it. Massive. Out Massive. And what's the moral of the story, which ties into the scourge of drunk driving, what's going to be done? The weekend after he was in court, and in the weekend subsequent, drinking and driving in the region of his courthouse went up to record levels. And so the point of this story, Shay, is that we're going to keep talking about this until two things happen. I don't think they'll happen, but only two things will make a difference here. If you accept, which is a flawed concept, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, I think it's a flawed concept, the idea of deterrence. For example, if this man you're asking about, Rempel, gets life in jail, will that make these kinds of crimes less likely to happen? First, Parliament has to do something about this. Now, the Trudeau government, as much as I can criticize it till the cows come home for a whole bunch of social justice and virtue signaling reasons, took some important steps in the last uh, term to sort of close loopholes that make my job much, much harder to defend impaired driving cases. But what they also did is put in some minimums for first, second, and third driving. But that doesn't involve 
killing people. Right. The it's... second thing, yeah, but let me just say before you get to your question, the second thing, because this is where the conversation should go, and this is probably more controversial, is until a judge decides to go a little bit higher than precedent, to go a little bit higher than their judge last week did, or the judge in Mutso did, until a judge runs the risk of saying, look, the maximum penalty here is life in jail. It is, Shay. Trust me on that. The maximum penalty for impaired driving causing death, dangerous driving causing death, is life in jail. Now, I'm not saying somebody should or shouldn't. Sure, but, but that, they can get that. That's, that's, that's on the books. They can be given that that's sentence. That's right. That's right. And when we're talking about five-year sentences, and you sort of stole my thunder because you know something that I'm always very open about, is does five years mean five years? Does 10 years mean 10 years? You sort of stole my thunder. (laughs) Now, there's very good reasons at times, and we won't waste time on our segment today talking about why serving one-third in some circumstances is quite good and in the interest of society, not in others, but in some. But until a judge decides, Shay, to really say, look, families have been wiped out. And when it's one thing to say you're impaired, it's another thing to be driving 200 kilometers sure, an yeah. hour. Or the wrong way right. down it's a divided a, highway. You got it. And here's the thing. Judges often are very scared about being overturned on appeal. But this is the very kind of issue that I think should be catnip to a judge in Calgary or Edmonton or Vancouver or Victoria to say, look, I'm going to give a sentence that reflects three or four lives taken with the worst example of drinking. Now, it can't be somebody just over the legal limit and the driving isn't horrendous. But let the Supreme Court of our country weigh in on this. And when you have Marco Muzzo, as you mentioned, and you know that case, Shay, getting 10 or 5 in this case, it sends the message that these lives don't have as much value as the life of the accused. And then there's a third idea. I'll pause here for questions because it's the one that I think should be replicated across Canada and nobody dares touch it. Okay, uh, we'll get to it in a sec. But first, you keep talking about judges, are and you're right. Ultimately, they deliver the verdict. The five-year sentence for the two kids killed um, last summer here in uh, the Edmonton area um, was a joint submission from the Crown and the defense. So it's not just the judge. I mean, that's what he had in front of him. The prosecutors seem to be on board with this, too. And here's why I wanted to talk about the Rempel one versus an open sentencing hearing, because that's where I was going there, is that you also have prosecutors who are duty-bound, and I give them credit for this, they are duty-bound to look at precedent, to look at what a situation looks like in terms of the law and previous cases. But remember, I just smoke, screen, smoke signaled to you, there's an office in Ontario that's looking at things differently. And the, to me... Shay, and I know this will be much more boring. I don't like to be boring, but forgive me. <laughs> there is one way that I think this problem has to be approached. And until it's approached in this way, I don't think things will change. Because remember, Christopher Rempel, Marco Muzzo, Brady Robertson are doing nothing different than thousands right. of Canadians every day, except for Rempel. Robertson and Muzzo have the pure misfortune of going through the wrong intersection or not making it home to pass out in their bed, okay? Yep. No, I agree with you. Right. Now, there's one jurisdiction in Ontario, one, and it hasn't received enough national attention. It's called York Region, 
where judges and prosecutors have started to seek real jail for first-time offenders. Not $1,200 fines, not $1,400 fines, but actual time in jail. And until Shay, people leave the Saddle Dome, maybe that's an old reference, until they leave um, a sports arena, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, and they know that if they have that second drink, that third drink, they may end up behind bars rather than hiring the great impaired driving lawyers in Canada to help them on a technicality, which are being closed. I think, Shay, we have to start looking at the people who make it home or get caught. Obviously, you can't catch somebody who made it home. But the people who don't kill anybody, and until those sentences change, Shay, I don't really think the public takes these things as seriously as they should. I agree with you 100%. Can I ask you to hold on for a second? We'll come back and continue the of conversation. Course, okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're chatting with Ari Goldkind, a criminal defense lawyer, about uh, drunk driving offenses in Canada and some sentences that just don't make sense. We'll be back right after this. And we're chatting with Ari Goldkind, who is a criminal defense lawyer. We're talking about drunk driving. And Ari, we were just getting to the point that I wanted to discuss with you because not long ago, December 1st of 2020, our province changed the drunk driving laws the people that you're talking about who don't kill somebody but get caught drunk driving, they called it strengthening the laws. It's no longer a criminal offense in some cases. You don't actually get a criminal record. Instead, you can get fines and a mandatory education program. And at the time, they billed it as being strengthening the drunk driving laws. Um, MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, supported this. To me, as you were saying, if you make it home without killing somebody and you're a drunk driver, you're damn lucky. And we, we it's almost like we're giving them a bonus or a benefit for that. And so you say, let me introduce another way to look at this. I often, and again, I defend these cases. I'm a criminal defense lawyer, but I'm not here to do anything other than try and play it down the middle. People think driving, uh, driving with alcohol in your system in Canada is illegal. It's not. You're allowed to drink up to 0.8, right? right? People often get confused. This is state sanctioned. Drinking and driving. Now, my view is there should be zero tolerance. I've had all the arguments presented to me as if I'm in a debate club about, oh, what if you're leaving a wedding? What if you're leaving a bar mitzvah? What if you're leaving a, you know, your favorite hockey team losing to an American team? I don't care. These are 2,000 ton killing machines. We know the carnage they do. And the only time, Shay, this really deeply affects Canadians in a serious way is when it's their loved ones being killed. Well, the fact that I don't know the people killed in the Rempel matter, that I don't know the family that Brady Robertson killed, that doesn't really matter to me. And one of the things that you should know if you want to know how the sausage is made is that one of the reasons various provinces are moving towards this fine system and getting it out of the criminal courts, and this is actually quite jarring for your audience to hear, is because impaired driving is one of the most common, if not the most common, crime in Canada. And what that means, Shay, is that Houston, we have a problem, but in courts, particularly because of COVID and even before, impaired driving trials clog up the courts more than what your audience thinks are possibly murders, sex assaults, drugs. No. Impaired driving defenses and trials take up more time in courts, and it's one of the very significant reasons courts have backlogs, and we often, you and I talk about cases being kicked out for delay. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot more here that the public is not being told, but, you know, 
Nobody can convince me in certain circumstances. Now, again, Shay, I'm a defense lawyer. Yeah. If somebody makes an honest mistake and blows 0.81, isn't showing indicia of impairment, isn't swerving all over the road, they're probably somebody with, that doesn't have a criminal record and probably can be rehabbed and have things in their car to make sure they're not drinking. They don't need to be a criminal. But when you get into two or three times over the legal limit, and you're swerving all over the place. Shay, this is just my view. How do you justify a homeless person going to jail for 30 days for stealing a sandwich in Canada, which does happen, Yeah. but somebody who does the example I just gave you pays a $1,200 fine. Yes, their insurance takes a hit, but we're talking by and large of people that can afford cars in the first place, which I assure you in my province, Shay, Many people can't even afford a car. Well, that's the thing, Ari. I mean, the bottom line, you know, in the old saying, the punishment should fit the crime, and it just, it doesn't. It doesn't. And here's the, you can't and say here's that. here's a way to look at it. And here's a way to look at it when you use a term that I like. The punishment should fit the crime. The way our system works, and I'm very critical about this, and I take heat for it. You can well uh, appreciate I don't care. I don't see the crime as different. The law does. The criminal right. code does. But I don't see the law as different if you're two or three times over and you get caught at a ride program or a spot check or you mow into a family. What you did is no different just because lightning got struck lucky. a good way or the other way. Exactly. I agree with you 100%, Ari. Uh, always great insight. Love having you on the show. Thanks so much. We'll do this again. Anytime. Ari Goldkind, criminal defense lawyer and... Legal commentator. Bit of a surprise, I think, to a lot of Albertans yesterday as uh, Pat Rain, the MLA for Lesser Slave Lake, was welcomed back into the United Conservative Caucus. He was booted only six months ago um, uh, against complaints that he was absent from the riding, wasn't providing any representation. It was actually a letter from Slave Lake Town Council that I think was the tipping point in all of this. At the time, Jason Kenney said he's made no meaningful effort to work in his constituency or to properly represent his hardworking constituents. I have repeatedly asked Mr. Rain to be more present in his constituency. He has ignored calls from me, UCP caucus leadership, and his constituents to do so. So he was booted. At the time, Jason Kenney said he would not be running under the UCP banner again. Apparently, time heals all wounds. Not a lot of time in this case. So, what has changed? To find out, let's chat with the mayor of Slave Lake. Tyler Warman joins us. Uh, good morning, Mayor Warman. How are you today? Amazing. You? Good, good. Thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, first of all, the announcement yesterday, uh, your reaction to it, were you surprised? Uh, a bit, yeah, for sure. The uh, you know you, you're opening there. You talk about the premier had said that uh, you know he would never fly under the UCP caucus again. And fast forward a few months, and uh, he's back in. So um, you know we had no conversations with the province and and no heads up, and uh, so it was a surprise. We found out just at the same time as everybody else. Okay, so that announcement came as a complete surprise to you as well. Yeah, I heard some rumors just in the last couple of days behind the scenes from locals that the. Um, constituency association had been discussing it, but uh, that's all I knew at that point. Interesting. Okay, now, uh, in announcing his reinstatement, um, the UCP said, since his removal from caucus, Rain has worked tirelessly to rebuild trust with local families, businesses, elected officials, and Indigenous leaders. True or false? 
uh, tirelessly is um, doing a lot of you work. Know, yeah. Well, you know, I, I will say that he's, he's put in more effort. You know, I definitely think that he heard the, uh, heard the message there. Um, it's unfortunate because we had told him that same message previously and sent them to that in writing and nothing changed. Um, when he was removed from caucus and it became a very public thing, I think he did start putting more effort into the region for sure. Um, and it was the same kind of effort that realistically we saw while he was campaigning. So the big question as we move forward is, is this the new MLA or is this part of a new campaign? Um, they also went on to say that he's done a lot of work rebuilding trust and getting things done in the constituency. I know following you on social media, you've got some things. Primarily, I'm seeing a lot of talk around highways and things like that, which are provincial responsibility. Has he been working hard on the files that you need him to work hard on? Um, he says he has. Have he, you seen it? Um, uh, a lot of the results that we have seen so far has come from direct interaction with the province and not so much through our MLA. However, I will say that the province will say to us in those discussions that um, they're hearing the message very loud and clear from our MLA as well. So, um, you know, I want to give him credit that he is trying. The question will be moving forward is, you know, is that is, is that is that trying for his position or is that trying for the people of this region? So what are you looking for? What are you watching for? What are you hoping to see from Pat Rain? You know, I, I think, you know, I'm a very action-based guy. You know, I, I want to get stuff done. And a lot of the frustration came from before the fact that we would present a list of concerns. And, you know, I think one of the frustrations we have as a municipality is 99% of the concerns that we bring to the province's attention are maintenance on their own portfolios. Um, we're not looking for big things that we're, you know, working on. We're not looking for more money for our own coffers. We're saying, hey, you got some problems in healthcare. You got some problems in infrastructure. You got some problems in highways, and we just want you to fix it. And you know, it gets frustrating having those same conversations over and over again. And sometimes previously in our meetings, having to re-educate all over again, like it was our first meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that list never changes. It just kind of grows. Um, and so I, I will say moving forward, you know, we just want to be able to have conversations where we have an advocate that goes and fights for our residents, for our people, and creates that action. You know, I think it's important, too, that, you know, yeah, as an elected official, it's a, it's a funny thing that once you get elected, you have to recognize that you're not just there to represent the people that elected you. You rep- represent the people that didn't elect you as well. You're So there's, you know... 10,000 residents or more up here that need to be represented. I think it's 20-some thousand off the top of my head, 23 or 26, uh, that he represents. He represents all of those people, uh, and he is our advocate to the province. He's our advocate to this region. He is not the provincial representative to the people that live here. And those are two very different things. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, in, In terms of representation, having somebody back at the caucus table, that... I can see the benefit for somebody in your position to have a voice around the caucus table rather than somebody who's been booted and is sitting as an independent. So, I mean, it, that could be seen as a as a positive for this, right? I mean, it could be better than the alternative. Am I being too optimistic? No, I, I agree. But um, so, you know, being fair to the whole situation, it's definitely more advantageous to the people that live here to have someone that's within the caucus than someone without with respect, we also had that previously and didn't get a lot of results, so I'm hoping second time around, it's going to be better for us. Okay. Uh, Mayor Warman, thank you so much. Always great insight. I appreciate your time. 
Appreciate you having me. You bet. That's Tyler Warman, who is the mayor of Slave Lake, and it was the letter that he signed on to, along with the rest of town council in Slave Lake, back when this issue all came to a head six months ago uh, and led to Pat Rain being booted from the UCP caucus. Uh, at the time, um, you know, the fact of the matter was he wasn't in the riding very often. He has business interests in the United States. His expense account showed that he'd spend the majority of his time in Edmonton. Uh, he wasn't in Slave Lake, and council came out and said, we're just, we're not getting any representation from this guy. You know, he's our elected official. He's not even here. Um, and at the time, Jason Kenney agreed and said that we've been trying to get him to work in the constituency and we can't. He doesn't listen to us either. So he booted him. Um, what changed over the course of six months? According to the mayor, he has been more engaged. He has been more involved. Um, was he doing that to save his own job or was he doing that because he felt that was his job as the elected official? That remains to be seen. We'll see how it all shakes out going forward. But Certainly a pretty quick reversal. Less than six months from being persona non grata, out of the party, can't run under the banner again, to, yeah, come back on in. You're now part of the UCP caucus again. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.